Thanks to Josh for his awesome singing this morning. Appreciate that. So I just uh, appreciate that. We have another concert coming up next week. And uh, it's great to have people come early, enjoy the music. And uh, we have a lot of talented people in our church. And we just want to have an opportunity to have some more Christmas music. So we added this. And uh, thank you for all for coming. Uh, also, I want to highlight a couple things. Uh, one thing is about the invitations that you will see on our back table. We've been putting them in your bulletin last few weeks. We didn't put them this time. But we have invitations about Christmas. We also have uh, straight invitations for people. And you may say, why do we have all these invitations? Why do we bother printing them? Why do we do this? Um, Tom Rayner in his book, The Inviting Church, notes how most people get to church. It says that 2% come through advertisements or a print advertisement, maybe the web or something like that. 6% because the pastor invited them. We're not really that effective, it looks like. 6% because of evangelistic services. So you might have a special service invite. And 86% because someone they know invited them. 86%. You are a better witness to your friends than I am. You are the ones that are going to reach to them. You're the one who's going to tell them about Jesus. You're the one who's going to invite them to church. You're the one they're going to trust. And so that's why we print these things. That's why we want it. Christmas time, some people are saying, hey, maybe it's been a while since I've been to church. Invite them. Invite them to come. Our Christmas Eve service we're working on right now is a great time to invite people to. We're having a lot of special music for that. And, uh, or any service coming up here, um, you know that what the church is. And uh, we want to get people, but it's really important that we're always looking for opportunities to invite people. Invite people to get to know more about God. Because if you don't, you don't do it, you think, well, somebody else will do it, somebody else will do it. You're the best option. You're the one they trust. And so just take that opportunity. This morning I want to talk about the gift of love. Uh, again, my name is Pastor John Huber, for anybody who's new here. And uh, I'm glad you're with us today. Welcome to those who are visiting with us and those who have been with us for a long time. And we're just glad that you're here today. You picked a great Sunday to be here because we're going to talk about the gift of love. Uh, We've been talking about the Advent series about the four themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. And today we want to talk about love. And all these are online if you miss one. Uh, Next week we'll be talking about uh, peace. And the last week Pastor Jordan will be talking about hope. And so... If you had a Christmas list and you could have all of these four things in your life, I think you'd be pretty happy. If I said I guarantee you that this year you will have hope, peace, joy, and love in your life, I would take that over anything I can put on an Amazon wish list. I would take that. And this is what God says that he offers to us and the gift that he has. And love, when we talk about love, love is something that uh, people write about, people sing about, people talk about. People say weird ways. Um, people say they love things that they, I don't know why, like I love this chair. I'm not sure what that means. Or I love this, whatever. And they, they throw on love. They fall in love, fall out of love. Um, what does love mean? I mean, all, I mean it's all out there. It's, it's something. And so we need to understand that it's something that people are constantly discussing, something that people are constantly wondering about. What is it about love? And what is it the true definition of love. The true definition of love comes down to this in 1 John where it says anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
The definition of love is God and who He is. So the answer to all the questions from all the country music songs and rock music songs and classical songs and swing it, throughout the ages is God is the answer. And God has this. Now when it comes to the Christmas story, probably one of the most um, verses that we've seen so many times, in fact, what is really interesting, I had a group of contractors come into our church once. We were building this building. And they said, Pastor, we've never been in a church. We have to ask you a question. And I said, yeah, shoot, whatever, go on. And they said, uh, what does John 3, colon 16 mean? We see people put up John 3, colon 16. We have no idea what they're talking about. And I said, that's probably accurate that we need to go out and tell people what it is, not just flash it up and, hey, 3, colon 16, woo And what does that mean? But the whole thing is, and this is the story of Christmas, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 goes further. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the Christmas love that we have right now is that God so loved the world, and this word right here for world means the world that is evil. This does not mean the good world. This is not, it's a small world uh, from Disney World. This is the evil word for world. And it meant that he came for us, not to condemn us, even though we deserve condemnation, but to set us free. On top of his sending his son, we can know that, we can know that God loves us. And how do we know that God loves us? When things become hard, we might truly wonder, does he truly love us? And Paul, in the verse we're going to talk about today, is going to ask a series of questions. And he's going to give the answer to each that lies in the love of God. The love of God is the answer to these questions. It is the answer to what is our questions of life, things that we may wonder, trials that we may go through. We have the love of God as the answer. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Starting with verse 31, it'll also be up on the screen, but we'll be referring back to this a lot. But we want to talk about what are these questions that Paul asks and what the answers are. And how do they relate to the love of God, which is the overarching theme. In verse 31, he starts out with this. "What What then shall we say to these things? And you may say, well, that's an interesting way to put it because he's talking about these things. What he is talking about is what came before this. What came before this? He's going to set up the whole thing by saying Christ died for us and was raised for us. Earlier he had mentioned that Christ, that we are justified through Christ. In verse 15 he says we have been adopted into his family. In verse 17 it says we are co-heirs with Christ. In verse 18 in chapter 8 he says our future glory is unfathomable. The sufferings of his life cannot be compared. Verse 23 says we have received the Spirit as the guarantee of final redemption. Verse 26, our prayers are taken up by the Spirit and laid before God. Verse 28, God is working all things for our good. Verse 30, though sinners by nature, through faith we have been acquitted of all wrong. And verse 30, our future glorification is so certain that God speaks of it as already having taken place. Those are some really good things. If you're going to say, what shall we say of these things? 
This is who you are in Christ. This is who you are. All aspects from our beginning of our lives through eternity. And so what Paul is going to do in the paragraph that follows this is he is going to reinforce the idea and convince the readers that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can take the love of God away from us. The effects of that love on us, they're going to be there forever. We may struggle with believing this. So Paul is going to argue from the points to show that God does love us. He will look at four questions which may cause us to question or doubt the love of God for us. Because you know what? We question. We say God loves us, but we don't necessarily live that way. We live in fear instead of love. We say God loves us, but doesn't he understand? But I just committed a sin. There's no way God loves me anymore. God loves us, but things are bad in my life right now. It must mean God has stopped loving me. God loves us, but this is going on, but this is going on, but this is going on. And the questions start to creep in. And so Paul wants to address how much does God love you and how much does this happen with these questions. The first one he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly if God is for us, then what does it matter who it may be against us? The assumed answer is no one. What is against us? Paul doesn't say nothing is against us. He is saying that everything against us will fail. Sometimes you're not paranoid if they really are out to get you. Have you ever heard that line before? That always makes me laugh. There are enemies that are out to get you. There's a, a prowling line, which is, the, which is the devil that is out to seek and save and destroy, seek and destroy the, the, the believers. We have people that are under the power of Satan that are out to destroy us too. It is, but what it is saying right here is none of these can destroy us. Who can come against us that can be successful? And the answer is no one. Because the love of God guarantees that he is always on our side. The proof also is that he's willing to give up his son for us. But let's look at Revelation 12 where it says that he threw Satan from heaven when he was accusing us. Satan was up in heaven. He accused Job. And then what happened in Romans 12, or Revelation 12, we're going to see, is that Jesus, when he, when he died and rose from the dead, he went up to heaven and he kicked him out and said, you no, no longer shall accuse the brethren. You no longer have the right to accuse them because of what I have done for them. You have no access to accuse. So the enemy, the devil who says, I get to accuse you, you can say, you can shout to the wind, but nobody's listening because God does not listen to your accusations. He he points out the, the powers on earth, the people, the power of sin all come against us and, and they all fail. God's gracious giving from greater to lesser. If he is willing to give his only son for us, will he not provide us everything he needs? In other words, God shows that he's always for us by what he gives us. God gave up, his, gave up him. It talks about that he gave up his only son. If you read this, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So it says right here that God is, is for us. God gave him up. It is his plan. It is his initiative. It is saying that God said, I love you so much and I am on your side so much, I will give up my only son. Salvation and inheritance 
in heaven. What we need on earth is all coming from him. So Jesus is the answer. Jesus was given for us. Jesus was sent to earth for us. It was his idea. He was not forced to come for you. It was the love of God that came to bring Jesus to earth so that he may come live a sinless life and also to be a sacrifice for us. And it is by God's grace that God did not spare his own son, but he gave him to us this Christmas season which continues all the way through the Easter season where he is sacrificed for us. So if he's who can be against us, the answer is no one and no thing. Question 2 in verse 33. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It says, who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The answer to this, again, is, you're going to get notice this, no one and nothing. That's always the answer. This is a very easy quiz. Just for the record, there's, you can all get extra credit points on this. It was just nailing it. It is God who justifies. What does the word justify mean? It is a legal term that says he has removed our guilt and he has declared us righteous by the sacrifice of Christ. He has declared us not guilty. What's interesting about that is we're all guilty. None of us deserve this. It is by grace, he says, by grace that he gave his son. It is by love that he does it for us. It is by love that kept Christ on the cross for us. And he does this for us because he loves us. And he is, um, excuse me, <laughs> my voice is kind of going here. And who shall bring any charges, it is God who has done this. He is the ultimate judge of the universe he created. He is now going to, with, he's not going to withdraw your election. He's not going to say that you are not one of his people anymore. It is the elect, he says, he, the ones that he has chosen, the one he has taken in, you are with him forever. It's not like something's going to be taken from you. It's not like, you ever have something really good and you worry that it might just go away? It's, it's, I, I think about, you know, you have something really nice, and you're like, this is too good, I'm just going to lose it. Or I'm going to have something bad happen here. I've had people that have a nice car, and they're like, well, eventually it's going to get a dent in it, or eventually it's going to break, or you have something nice. And, uh, and then there's Josh, who's very nice. Thank you, Josh. But God's forgiveness, in the judicial terms, it says that God will not take anything that he has given to you and take it away. Who can bring charges against God's elect? It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God, which means we were at war with God while we were sinners. We told God, go away, I will do it my way. That is war with God. We said, we don't want to follow your ways, but through faith in Jesus Christ, now we are at peace with God and his love. The future tense, the emphasis is on final judgment. Who will attempt to bring charges? Who's going to attempt at our final judgment to come up and say, this person does not deserve the salvation that God has given? Who's going to bring these charges? Satan, our enemies, our sin, 
Many will try and many will fail. Now, as I wrote that line, I thought to myself, that would be a great tagline for a movie. Many will try and many will fail. I'm just sorry, it just, it just clicked with me. But think of it that way. You are before the throne room of God, the ultimate judge, and someone's going to come up and they're going to say, he doesn't deserve it, and God's going to say, yes, he does. Yes, he does, because I say so. You may try. There are going to be accusations coming your way. There will be. The worst accuser of you, the worst person to do this, is that person who lives right here. Because you're guilty conscience. Don't you remember 1987, God? Don't you remember 2014? Don't you remember yesterday? This morning? An hour ago? I mean, I don't know. It could happen either way. Don't you remember these things? And our conscience says that God does not forgive us. That we have a guilty conscience. And God's forgiveness, but he's saying right here, God's forgiveness should never be doubted. God has forgiven you. And he who is forgiven or she who is forgiven is forgiven forever. There is no accusation. You get to heaven and God says, you are justified and righteous in my eyes. And I think to myself, wow. Undeserved, gracious love of God. Because of the love of God and his acts of love in coming to earth and dying for us, we can respond like the prophet Isaiah. I like this line. He who vindicates me is near, it says in Isaiah 50, verse 8. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Isaiah just says, I have God on my side. I have the God of heaven. Who can bring a charge against me? No one and no thing can do that. Question number three, who is to condemn me? Condemn means to pronounce a sentence on a person after determination of guilt for our sins that may be ongoing. There's a problem with, we may say, yes, I accepted Jesus Christ. He forgave me my sin. I used to live this way. I used to have this lifestyle. I've got this testimony of all these things. But you know what? I still struggle with sin in certain areas. I still struggle with this. I don't know if I'm really okay in fact, in church history, there was a doctrine that went around in the second, third century, and it got so bad that people believed that you had to wait till the very last minute to get baptized. They would wait till their deathbed and be baptized to make sure that they covered all their sins, because what if you missed one? What if you missed one? Then God, you get to heaven, and God's like, ooh, 99.9%. Sorry, 100% is the only thing. Because we look at this, and we say, who is to condemn to pronounce a sentence after a person of guilt. It's not a fresh, it's, quite, it's just a follow-up of verse 33 argument. Um, but God is the judge of, of the universe, and God is the one who decides. The implied, again, is no, no one. And why is Christ Jesus listed here? Why is it that Christ Jesus, who is to condemn? Okay? And if you go and you look at this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So he gives us the answer, who is to condemn you in your sin that you may have committed after you were saved? Because when we get saved, we say, God forgave us. Hooray. And then we go out, and guess what we probably most likely, pretty much definitely do? We sin. 
And then the enemy comes and goes, yep, good job. You had it for a while there. Things were going well. You had that whole Jesus thing, you know, wow. Now you blew it. Because God only get, God's not going to forgive you again. I mean, how many times is he going to put up with you? But let's put it this way. He goes in ascending order. He says, the one who died, he did redemption for our sins. He took our punishment. More than that, who was raised, which leads to the following two things. He continues to work on our behalf because we continually need his help. If Jesus just died for our sins, we'd be in trouble. He was raised so he can continue to work with our sins. All right, because we need constant help. Who is at the right hand of God. He rules with the Father, but he also has access to the Father, the ultimate judge. And who indeed is interceding for us today. When we go to God and we say, God, forgive me. And we feel like terrible, horrible people. You know who's up in heaven going, I want them forgiven? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Who died and was raised. He's interceding for us from the Father. Hebrews 7.25 puts it this way. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in other words, do not let the enemy condemn you. Do not let your own conscience condemn you when you sin, because it's saying, I've got a plan for it when you sin too. I not only forgave you, took you out of your old sin, I've got a plan. Do not let this bear you down, because the love of Christ, the love of God for us, says that he wants to take us through this entire life, and he knows we're going to need constant forgiveness. What is Christ advocating and praying for you today? He is our high priest. When we confess our sins, we are forgiven and he intercedes for us. Who needs an advocate or a lawyer worse than those who are guilty? All right? We're guilty. And you know what Jesus says? Yes, they're guilty. I'm interceding for them and I'm taking the punishment for them. He just looks up and he says, yep, they're guilty. I'll take the punishment. Yep, they're guilty. I'll take. I think that's just a constant thing, okay? But he will take that for us. Verse 4, where it's all been leading up, or question 4, what it's all been leading up to, starting with verse 35. Who then shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The big finale and the main focus. Sure, God may love us, but can something separate us? I, I think we look at this world and we see whether it's through life whether it's through the way people have talked about love, they see love as something that is fragile. They see love, we see weddings, and we see a bride and groom look into each other's eyes and say, I love you and I love you, and two years later, they're throwing things at each other and, and getting apart from each other. And we say to ourselves, there is no love. There's a whole trend right now where people are saying, what's the point of marriage? What's the point of having relationships? Because love doesn't last. Love isn't real. Love can separate us. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's no good. Because love isn't real. And what, what he wants to say right here is the love of God will never separate from you. And nothing can separate you from God's love. This is not the human kind of love. 
the selfish kind of love that we have on this earth. It is the love that comes from God the Father in Christ Jesus. And he breaks it down. He says, and it may seem to have that power. There seems to be all kinds of powerful things that want to separate our love. But he says, he says, shall tribulation. He, this is his reference for things that are very difficult. The hardships that occur in the lives of common mortals. Anything that's hard in our life is the word here in, in the Bible that is used for the pains of a woman in childbirth. I've never gone through them. But for the women I've talked to, they say, yep, that'd be a big one. Okay? So what he's trying to say is, that kind of pain that you have in your life, that kind of pain that this life brings on you, shall that separate you from God's love? No. In a more, he's saying that is not possible. Or distress, which is extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. If you experience these things in your life, does that separate you from the love of God? No. Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Everything that he's writing, he's saying, none of these things no matter what is brought to you in this world, will separate you from the love of God in your life. For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We have the feeling as we're going through these things, we have a feeling that if God loved us, none of these things would ever happen. None of these things would ever happen in our life. If God truly loved us, he would make sure everything goes perfectly in our lives. And that's not the definition of love. The definition of love is that God has a perfect plan for us in the future, but that God takes us through all of these tribulations. God takes us through, these are things that are common to people. They're common to this life. And he's saying that I will take you through. So how does, how does Paul respond to these feelings and feeling lostness? He says, join me in knowing, in verse 37, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And others we are saying, not only, and people have used this verse, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It's kind of fascinating that he uses that verse, and you think, more than conquerors? He just talked about pain. How are we more than conquerors of pain? Nakedness, despair, the sword coming at us. And what's really interesting about the word is the word that he uses for conquer, and again, maybe I've watched too many Marvel movies, but it's the word for super conqueror. It's not just the regular conqueror, it's the super conqueror. It could be a, I mean, you know, Stan Lee's not around anymore, but he could come up with super conqueror. He overcomes by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it could happen. And so Romans 8.28, it says, and, as we kn- and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. He comes back to 828, where he says that everything that the enemy throws at us, anything this life throws at us, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are more than super conquerors. We are ones that grow in our faith. And then he goes further. He says, for I, I know, I'm sure that neither death nor life, polar opposites, nor angels nor rulers, Colossians 2.15, which we just talked about, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Nor things present, nor things to come, to come, any time period, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, any space, nor anything else in creation, it covers it all. There's no place you can go, there's no part of life you can be in, there's no um, 
death or life. There's no rulers. There's no enemy forces. There's nothing that can overcome you because you are more than a conqueror because Jesus Christ loves you and died for you. Because of the love of God that is expressed in Christmas, you are more than a conqueror for all these things. Who will, who will be able to separate us from the love of our God in Christ Jesus our Lord? This is our assurance that cannot be taken away. Nothing else is permanent and can be counted on in this life except for the permanent love of Jesus Christ in our lives. There are four questions that Paul asks, answered about God's love for us. First of all, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, no one and nothing. Thank you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one and nothing. Who is to condemn? No one and nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of God? No one and nothing. That's the love of God. That's the answer of this. When you feel condemned, when you feel charges against you, when you feel that God is distant, he's not. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing can separate you from his love. And if we really believe these things, how different will we live? There's no fear of separation from God's love. There's no fear of anybody who will condemn us. There's, there are those who will come against us, but you know what? They will fail. Anybody who comes against us, it has to deal with God. It's just like having a big brother with you where the person says, I'm going to beat you up. I'm like, maybe you'd like to talk to the person who's defending me. And you just step aside and God takes care of it. Because that's what it is, is God is for us. There's no fear of God not providing for you because he says, if he provided his own son for you, how much more will he provide for you in your daily activities? A radical life of living securely in the love of God expressed by this Christmas gift of love that God has given. John Chrysostom, who lived in the last half of the 4th century, he earned the nickname. I love this guy because he's got a great name. I, I don't want the name, but it was because he was such a good speaker, he was called Golden Mouth. I think that's a funny name. Because of his eloquent sermons. I guess I'd take it for that. Uh, this got him in trouble with the Romans. When he was brought before the Roman Emperor, he was threatened with exile if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom's reply to the emperor reflects the insight of one who understands that true freedom and true love from fear comes from absolute confidence in the love of God. First, the emperor threatened him with exile. John responded, you can't exile me. The whole world is my father's house. So in other words, you say, well, we're going to put you someplace over here. Well, God, you can't separate me from God's love. Then I will kill you, said the emperor. You can't, said John, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasures. You can't, for my treasure is in heaven. Then I will drive you away from men, and you will have no friends left. You can't, for I have a friend in heaven for whom I cannot be separated. I defy you, for there's nothing you can do to hurt me. Just think of that confidence that he has. There is nothing this world can do to hurt us if we are secure in the love of God for us today. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, Jesus our Lord. And in that end, that's all that really matters. Why don't you stand with me right now? For our prayer ministers could come forward. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you've never made him the master of your life, I want to tell you today that today is the day to make that commitment. 
Everything I'm talking about today is who we are. God loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for you. Sent his son at Christmas. That, that son grew up to live and then to die where we celebrate an Easter so that you can be forgiven of your sins so you can have all the assurance of God's love for you. You see, God loves you while you are still a sinner, while you are still an enemy, but he wants to bring you to peace with God. He wants to give you forgiveness in Christ and make you a new creation in him. That's what he's offering you. And it all comes for you putting your faith in him. If you want to make that commitment, come and talk to one of our prayer ministers. Also, if you're here today and you just need someone to pray with you about something in your life, maybe you're struggling with some of the things, some of the the hurts that we're talking about right here. Understand that the love of God has never left you, but he is here to minister to you. Your church is here to minister to you and show you that love of God. And that's what's here. For the rest of us, let's this Christmas season think about this theme of Advent, that the love of God, the love of God, nothing can separate us. No one can condemn us. No one can come against us. No guilt from the past. No anything can separate us. God loves us so much that he sent his son into this world so that we may have hope, so that we may not be condemned, but that we may have life eternal with him. The greatest gift of love that we can ever receive. Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your peace and your joy. But God, today we just concentrate on the love of God for us. God, you didn't spare your son. You sent him to this earth, God. He had to throw off everything that he had that was so wonderful in heaven. He came to earth. And then he eventually died for us, God, and rose from the dead. And if you do that for us, God, we know you'll do anything for us. We know that you'll reach down into any circumstance that we have and provide a way for us, God. For us, if it's sword, if it's anything in our life that comes against us, God, you have an answer. Any accusation that we feel in our heart, God, is not from you because you're not the accuser. You're the one who says there's no accusation against us. Let us live with these truths this Christmas season, God, and let us be diligent about bringing this truth to others. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now go and connect with one another.